Welcome to episode 19 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This one was ordered off menu. You have to know the guy. And if you want the souffle, you should call ahead. I'm currently halfway between trips. Last week I was in Wisconsin where it was cold and snowed. Tomorrow I'm heading to Miami where neither of those things will be true. In Wisconsin, I tried this terrific beer that's only sold in Wisconsin, I'm told, and at the airport. It's called the New Glarus Spotted Cow. I had three. I also went to the Harley-Davidson Museum in Milwaukee, which was terrific. And I took a photo of myself sitting on a motorcycle, which prompted a friend to describe me as uneasy rider which is very rude, very hurtful, very uh, true. I'm going to start this week's show with a... Hang, hang on. With a Q&A. The question. If you were to create a British Mount Rushmore... What four faces would it display? John, Paul, George, and Ringo are not eligible, by the way. What a caveat. How dare you suggest that I would have chosen the... All right, that's who I'd have chosen. Well, it's a great question. So I'll set some parameters for myself. I'm going to assume that while the Beatles are excluded, my four British Mount Rushmore figures don't all have to be political. And certainly that they don't all have to be prime ministers. So in other words, I'm going to assume that other than the Beatles, I can put anyone on this Mount Rushmore who is British. So here we go. Here's my four. Number one, William Shakespeare. Obviously. The greatest writer in the English language, and probably in any language, in the history of the world. I recently called Mozart the Shakespeare of music, so I'll return the compliment here. Shakespeare is the Mozart of writing. He's untouchable. He's so good that it is almost impossible to comprehend. And for the first 15 or so years of my life, I didn't like Shakespeare. I couldn't sit and read Shakespeare or watch Shakespeare and understand Shakespeare as if I were listening to normal English, modern English. It sounded foreign, or at least half foreign. It sounded like an uncanny valley version of English. But then, all of a sudden, I could. 
I was 15, 16. I was on a school trip to see Othello. And I suddenly realized, maybe 20 minutes in, that I was grasping every line as if it were written in contemporary language. And then I realized how extraordinary it was. When you don't understand it, before you get there, the occasional oldness of the language and the oldness of the stories too, especially the historical dramas, can give off the wrong impression. It can make the whole thing seem fusty, alien, vintage. But when you do understand, you realize that it's anything but. And if, like me, you don't believe that human nature changes over time, if you think people were the same in the time of Julius Caesar as they are now, then the greatest expositor of human nature in literary history can never be alien or old. Is what Iago does to Othello old? Is what happens to King Lear old? Are the themes in Henry V old? No, of course not. Shakespeare also invented huge swathes of the English language. When he didn't have a word or a phrase, he simply invented one. And most of the words and phrases that he invented have stuck around. At random, here are a few of his coinages. Admirable. Accommodation. Amazement. Bump. Cat-like, circumstantial, distasteful, employment, fashionable, gallantry, hostile, inauspicious, lament, madcap, noiseless, overblown, Pageantry. Posture. Quarrelsome. Reclusive. Savage. Sanctimonious. Successful. Compromise. Gossip. How about the phrases? Break the ice. As good luck would have it. Eaten me out of house and home. A laughing stock. Too much of a good thing. What's done is done. Foregone conclusion. Brave new world. Melted into thin air. Wild goose chase. Wear my heart upon my sleeve. Neither rhyme nor reason. I could go on. These are all Shakespeare's phrases. So on to the English, no, the British. Mount Rushmore, he goes.
Next up is Winston Churchill. Now, really, Churchill ought to be here twice. First, for his clear thinking and moral leadership during the Second World War, which, well, which saved the world. And second, for his magnificent use of the English language in that endeavor. Edward R. Morrow argued that Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle, which he did. But more important was that Churchill tied that language to an early understanding that Adolf Hitler was a problem per se, not just a threat to Britain's transient interests, but a monstrous tyrant at the head of a monstrous ideology, a man who could not be reasoned with or bargained with or contained. Now that insight seems obvious now, but it wasn't obvious at the time, especially within Churchill's own party. And when it came to explaining this to the British public, Churchill did so in a manner befitting of the great orators and statesmen of history. First off, he didn't sugarcoat the task that was before him. In his first speech in the House of Commons, he said, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. That was blunt, it was true, it was helpful. Then he said, You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. Again, this was not how most people were talking in 1940. Later, when the sheer enormity of the Nazis' crimes became clear. Everyone talked like that. History books now talk like that. But that wasn't true in most quarters in the lead-up to and early days of the war. And of course, Churchill saw the same thing of the Soviet Union at a time when it was unpopular to say so out loud. And if you believe that, as Churchill did, then that means you can't compromise. Which is why in that speech, explaining his position, he said, You ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward toward its goal. 
the British public needed some cajoling on this point because understandably they were worried that we would see a repeat of World War I. Little did they know World War II would be worse. And finally, the optimism. He said, but I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all, and I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. In the years after the war, Churchill said, I was not the lion, but it fell to me to give the lion's roar. I don't think that's right. Certainly Churchill was not the only lion, but he was a lion. And had he not given that roar, the other lions may have behaved somewhat differently. Next is James Watt. Now, that's not a name you hear too often these days, at least not in full. We hear about Watts, the measurement of power that is taken from his last name. But we should hear more about James Watt because James Watt's work helped kickstart the Industrial Revolution. And eventually the Industrial Revolution brought billions of people out of poverty. Go on to Wikipedia. Look up James Watt. Scroll down to Legacy. And you'll see that the first thing there is a link titled Industrial Revolution which is about right. There's a quotation there, too, which explains that Watt's work on the steam engine converted it from a prime mover of marginal efficiency into the mechanical workhorse of the Industrial Revolution. Now, that Industrial Revolution was originally British. Its inventions were British, and Britain became the world's greatest power because of it. And then, of course, the British exported it around the world. And they did so in no small part thanks to James Watt, who was not the only person who built its foundations, but was perhaps the most important Brit. Watt also exhibited an autodidactic quality that I find admirable and that I'd like to see more of in Britain. He was a great mechanic, he was an accomplished chemist, he was a talented philosopher, he taught himself various languages so that he could read foreign instruction manuals, he developed the idea of horsepower, he knew his limitations too. He wasn't a great businessman, he struggled in that realm, so he outsourced that to someone else, Matthew Bolton. And together they became rich and changed the world. So onto the mountain he goes. And finally, Isaac Newton. It's really hard to convey just what Newton did for science. He was to the Enlightenment what James Watt was to the Industrial Revolution. He developed classical mechanics. He helped develop calculus, which I don't understand. 
He developed a theory of the refraction of light. He built the first reflecting telescope that worked. He worked out the speed of sound. He described gravity and the laws of motion better than anyone would until Einstein came along. Einstein, by the way, kept a picture of Newton on his wall. Newton's contribution was, as one critic put it, to distinctly advance every branch of mathematics then studied. He was so great, in fact, that he got away with the requirement that fellows of Trinity College, Cambridge, be ordained as priests by gaining special permission from the king, who considered Newton's work to be too important for all that. He also spent most of his time in Cambridge, where I'm from, so that obviously puts him over the edge. So there we have it. Shakespeare, Churchill, Watt, and Newton. There are, of course, many others I could have chosen. Obviously, I considered Margaret Thatcher. But the truth is that while Margaret Thatcher was a remarkable leader, many of her achievements have been undone and are being undone. Whereas Churchill's have not and Shakespeare's, Newton's, and Watts can't be. I also thought about the great reforming kings of the 14th through 17th centuries, and I thought about William of Orange, who saved the country from tyranny, but those seemed a little too early for a truly British Mount Rushmore, Scotland only having joined the fray in 1707. And I thought about Queen Victoria, but because it's the era that is the true star of that story, she's inextricable from so many other people of the time. So I settled on these. My guest today is Kat Rosenfield, a culture writer and novelist whose most recent book is You Must Remember This. Now, I've been reading Kat for a long time, and I've enjoyed her heterodox takes on all manner of topics, including so-called sensitivity readers. That's people who read books, both old and new, and point out what they consider to be offensive so that it can be changed. And of course, that came back into my mind this week when I read that the works of Roald Dahl, Roald Dahl of all people, had been targeted for this treatment. So I asked Kat on, and here she is. So Kat, welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Here I here am. Thanks are. so much for having me. All right, well, let's start here. You wrote a piece recently-ish, last year, in National Review. And the title of this piece was Why I Keep Getting Mistaken for a Conservative, which somewhat amusingly, although probably not for you, led to you being mistaken for a conservative or a crypto conservative <laughs> by even more people than had been mistaking you for a conservative before you wrote the piece. Now, in that piece, you wrote this. To explain why people keep mistaking me for a conservative, I need to first explain what kind of liberal I am and always have been, the free speech and bleeding heart variety. So, this is one of the strangest developments, I think, in our politics. But simply by saying you're free speech, many people think you're coding yourself 
as a conservative. H- how did that happen? Why is that? It's a completely bizarre turnabout. I have a theory as to why it did happen, and it has a lot to do with Donald Trump. Um, I think that for people who came of age in an earlier time, you know, to speak your mind, to be willing to espouse unpopular views, which at the time, and, and countercultural views, which at the time meant going against the grain of a sort of a religious, you know, conservatism, uh, you know, had the moral majority kind of prevalent at that time. So these were liberal coded things to do. And then Donald Trump came along and suddenly the willingness to offend people and to not care about, you know, which of their sacred cows you might be gutting was very much associated with him and hence with the Republican Party. And all of a sudden it became a quote unquote right wing ethos to care about free speech. But you haven't changed. You've always thought this. No, the... The earth just kind of moved under my feet. You know, I'm old enough to remember when uh, it was the right who wanted to ban basically everything fun. Uh, you know, all of the the cool, provocative art. They were the ones who wanted to ban South Park. Uh, you had Rudy Giuliani in Brooklyn trying to uh, prevent, uh, I think it was the... It was either Piss Christ or it was the one with the Virgin Mary okay. covered in elephant dung. Either way, he was very upset. He wanted to stop the uh, exhibit from showing. And this was just, at the time, it was sort of the quintessential conservative freakout over, you know, provocative art, you know, sexy art, dark art, whatever it was. You know, that was just what they did. And now they don't, or now both sides do? How do you see that? I guess now both sides do it. I mean, I'm certainly aware that, you know, in the literary sphere, for instance, you still have a number of people trying to ban the, um, oh, what's it called? When Tango Makes Three um, from from school libraries, because apparently seeing two male penguins raise a child is deeply offensive to some people still in the year 2023. And, you know, that's fine. More power to them. Um, I wish that they weren't trying to, you know, pull books out of libraries because I think the the great thing about the freedom to read is that you can decide what you do and don't want in your house and then you can leave everybody else alone to read whatever it is that they want. But nevertheless, that's the sort of right-wing version of things. And then on the left, um, you have often, you know, equally kind of extreme calls for censorship, but they tend to code it in different ways. Either it's about sensitivity, as you mentioned, or sometimes they call it misinformation. Uh, So basically now everybody's trying to shut down what they don't like and everybody's a hypocrite and everybody sucks. So I would see those (laughs) as different. And I wonder to what extent we agree and disagree here. The school library is a particular place. Now we can argue on the merits over what should be in the school library. But school libraries are for schools and schools are for children. And the state government, the parents board, they are making decisions which they believe to be in the child's best interest. And we treat children differently than adults. So even if you don't like the decisions that, say, an Alabama library comes to compared to a San Francisco library, it's still siloed off to some extent. But the other examples you mentioned, one was on the right, was protests against a piece of art being shown in a museum for adults at all, and protests against books being ever written, uh, essentially. That seems to me to be much more serious. 
Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. I actually was trying to sort of work through this on Twitter, which is a bad place to work through anything, but nevertheless. Um, and I, I had this sort of hierarchy of, you know, censorious impulses um, or negative impulses towards works of, of literature. Um, so I was doing this in the context of the rolled doll cancellation. And the thing that I, I started with was I won't read that book. And I think you go from there to, you know, I won't let my child read that book. I don't want this book in the school library. From there you get to, I don't want that book in any library. And then it starts to escalate. I won't let that book be sold. I won't let that book be published. The last one is, I won't let that book be written. And then you get into, you know, once you're at the top of that spectrum there, uh, you're talking about direct pressure campaigns against authors to try to change the work at the source. As an author myself, I'm more concerned about that than I am about one individual book being removed from a classroom curriculum or even from a school library. You know, I'd prefer that all the books be available in the school library, but of course that's not possible. The thing that worries me though, you know, as an author is, um, you know, censorious impulses that target creators and make it difficult for them to write work that is provocative to write work that is true. And that is, you know, admittedly something that's happening at the moment more on the left than on the right, if only because power to change culture has coalesced almost completely on the left and the right doesn't really have a lot of say there. So you used the word cancel there in relation to Roald Dahl. And I want to put this in the way that I think those who have endorsed what's being done to Roald Dahl's books would put it. They would say, Roald Dahl has not been cancelled. His books are still available. The old books are as they were when he died. The new editions have just a few words removed. You can still enjoy them. The narratives are the same. The stories are the same. The gist is the same. Does that convince you? No. I mean, it might, be, it might convince me to use a word other than canceled. Um, maybe canceled is not the right word. Because, in fact, you know, cancellation implies a sort of a, a personal reputational sabotage that happens while you're alive and Roald Dahl is dead. So, you know, that was maybe like a little bit less specific language than I should have used. But the rest of what you've said, um, I really heartily would disagree with. And I know that is sort of the argument that's being bandied about. But the fact is that the changes that have been made to these stories are, whether even if it is just comes down to word choice, they're substantive. Um, you know what made Dahl so great was the specificity of his language, what which was colorful and eccentric, and oftentimes crude, but in a way that was so resonant with kids. And this is very personal to me, which is why I've been fired up about it. Um, these books were formative for me growing up. I read them all the time as a kid. I must have read Matilda like 50 yeah, times, same. no joke. And, you know, there are there's a line in that book, actually, where he describes, I think it's Matilda's mother, as having one of those unfortunate figures that looks like the flesh has been strapped in all around the body to prevent it from falling out. That has stuck with me my entire life. I'm 40 years old now, so, you know, we're talking about more than 30 years that I've had that sentence in my head. And... That sentence is absent from the new version of Matilda. They simply deleted it. And I think that it really encapsulates something of like what kind of vision and imagination is being stripped from the books. Because that way of describing a person's body, it's true that it's not very nice, but 
boy, it is, it's the kind of thing a kid would say. Um, it's That's how kids see the world. And I think that that ability to articulate a child's worldview in this sort of um, this emperor has no clothes way where you're saying the things that kids observe, but they're starting to just learn that it's not polite to actually speak aloud. Rode Dahl bridged the gap for them between like, yes, you don't say this, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to kind of assert for you that what you see is actually there. So the, and th- the additional thing too about what they've done to Dahl is they have inserted new ideas into his books. They have stripped, in my opinion, essential language from his books, and yet they are still presenting the books as though they're unchanged. They're giving a completely false impression of who Roald Dahl was and what he wrote um, in a way that goes beyond censorship into, I think, kind of a form of fraudulence. It's really like if, if somebody... I don't know, put a pair of bikini briefs on Michelangelo's David and then claimed that it had always been that right. way, you know, right. and, and kids who weren't around to see the original will grow up thinking as much. Also, the line that you quoted is funny. I mean, it's mean, but it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's funny because it's mean. Right. <laughs> and I wondered true. the other day aloud, where is that going to end? P.G. Woodhouse, one of my favorites, albeit writing for adults, although I have to say, I've been reading Roald Dahl to my kids, and they're no less entertaining at the age of 38 than they was when I was seven. But, but P.G. Woodhouse, writing for adults, had these great lines that were mean. I mean, one of the fat jokes that he offers up is, she fitted into my biggest armchair as if it had been built round her by someone who knew they were wearing armchairs tight about the hips that season. Now, that's not <laughs> kind. <laughs> but if we're getting rid of the line that you quoted, I wonder why that wouldn't go as well. So you came up pretty strongly against editing these works. Here's another element that I wonder about. I have caught myself downplaying pressure on the author to change his work during his lifetime in the last couple of days. People have said correctly, you know, if you read the first edition of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas are a lot more racist in their depiction than they are now, and that Dahl changed this. Originally, they were pygmies, essentially, and he Mm -hmm. shifted them, and then the movie shifted them further And I've said, and I believe this, I've said, I think that's different because he had control over his work. It's different when you die and somebody changes your words after the fact. But I've heard you talk about this before. That's not always true, right? I mean, it can't always be the case that pressure on an author to change their work is benign or irrelevant because we've got to the point in the publishing industry where some people's books are being cancelled well, some cases after they're written before they're published, but in some cases before they're even written. So how do you see that, that the pressure on authors when they're alive, even if they consent to the changes? So, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory change, and, and there, there are other examples of this in history, including um, Dickens altered, I think, the character of Fagin in um, Oliver Twist, who, who was, you know, really kind of grossly anti-Semitic, right. and now he's just a little anti-Semitic. Um, but these were changes, certainly Dickens, and I think also Dahl's uh, change of the Oompa Loompas, 
these were changes made after the book had been published in response to feedback from readers. And so, you know, he was allowed in the initial offering of the book to realize his vision for it and then considered criticism. I'm sure he also received criticism that he didn't take, that he didn't incorporate. Um, And that is a very different thing from what's happening now, which is that the threat of losing your book contract and losing your ability to continue to do work is kind of held over your head during the editorial process. And I want to make it clear that this is not a thing that happens across the board. It is much more prevalent in some genres than others. But nevertheless, we're talking about a censorious impulse that's being levied at authors in a venue where they don't necessarily feel empowered to say no to what's being asked of them. And so I do think that that's bad. Have you come across this? Have you had sensitivity readers look through your work or felt pressure to alter it? I was involved in a project where somebody in the editorial process registered some really silly objections to things like somebody referring to being friend-zoned. And this person said, I don't like this. It's throwing a bone to incels. And, you know, I had to make a decision in that moment whether or not I wanted to stick my neck out and say, you're being ridiculous, which this person was, um, or to just go along with it because, you know, what if I, you know, what if, what if trying to argue for the integrity of the work ended up making it the last work that I ever worked on, you know? So, um, I've encountered things like that. And in that event, I actually did decide to stick my neck out and say, no, you know, like you're not right about this and let me show you why you're not right. Um, but it's, uh, it's a tough balance to strike. You know, I worry about, what might come down the pike as this type of interference during the editorial process becomes more normalized until it's perhaps expected that you're just going to kind of tone down your language until it's palatable to the most sensitive possible reader out there. Yeah, that was one of the things that amused me darkly about the note that I think Puffin appended, prepended, I always get that wrong, Puffin prepended to the new works. They said that so that everyone can keep enjoying Roald Dahl's works, we will be continually updating them. But I, I didn't see any evidence anywhere that people weren't enjoying Roald Dahl's works. It seems to me that the people who are engaged in this endeavor are right out on the margins. They're not indicative of anything particular in the culture. I don't think they're even on the margins so much as they're in a different world entirely. And one of my theories, and I've said this before, but I I think that the people who spearhead efforts like this don't actually like to read. Wow, that's interesting. They just see this as an extension of politics, perhaps. So, So what happens when the criticisms that are leveled at an artist are true? For example, Roald Dahl, at least in the early 1980s, was an anti-Semite. Or he wrote anti-Semitic things. Does it matter? The vast canon within the Western tradition is presumably full of people who in one way or another had horrible views or did horrible things or believed in horrible ideas Should we care about that at all 
should we completely separate the art and the artist? Is there a danger in even acknowledging that these people may have been problematic, as the kids say? Mm. I mean, you know, I think it's certainly relevant to discussing Dahl's legacy to acknowledge what a raging anti-Semite he was. And if the reanimated corpse of Roald Dahl called me up and said that he wanted to like come to my home for dinner, I would say no thank you. But I do think that there is something very different about engaging with the work of an artist as versus engaging with the artist himself. There's certainly a separation there. And I don't know why exactly it is that we have so much trouble kind of divorcing these things in our mind. Like if you go to a restaurant and you sit down and you order a meal and then you eat it, do you trouble yourself at any point with the question of like whether the guy who made your hamburger is a good father or a good husband or like whether he has bad politics? Um, But for some reason, when we do this with art, you know, it's as though we imagine ourselves enmeshed in this very kind of intimate intellectual way with the person who created it as though there's going to be a stink on us. And maybe that just speaks to the power of a painting that is not shared by, say, a hamburger. But I do think that given how easy it is to do this in basically every other sphere in which we operate, we spend all day, every day using products um, and engaging with, you know, with, with things that were invented or made by people who were not good people. And nobody thinks about it. It's like it only comes up when we're talking about a book or a movie or what have you. Yeah, I drive a Ford. That guy had some pretty awful views. <laughs> My first car was a Volkswagen, and that's even worse. And it right. never really <laughs> occurred to me to be worried about it. Although I do wonder, you're not a conservative, although you keep getting mistaken for one. I am a conservative or a a classical liberal, at least. And this makes me laugh. This guy used to email me, you know, if I ever tweeted out that I was listening to a band, he would say, you know, all of the people in that band would hate you. And I thought, yeah, I know. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) Uh, That's true across the board, really. But it's not for progressives. The arts do lean that way. Not everyone is the arts is a progressive, but... Do you, do you think it, it's partly because they're just not used to it? They're not used to having, say, Jake, a J.K. Rowling figure stand up and say, hey, I don't agree with you. That might be it. I mean, I don't know. I, I always come up against this, especially because I, I do write um, mysteries and thrillers, which are a genre read across the board by by all kinds of people. Um but, you know, like conservative people like to read too. Conservative people like to go to the movies too. And I don't know why it is that we, um, you know, folks who identify as on the left have decided that we own the culture. Oftentimes there's this strange thread kind of running through all of these discussions where it's, nobody ever quite says this explicitly, but it's definitely present subtextually that like, if you don't share our politics, you just don't deserve books or films or art of any kind you know it's just like it's just not for you because you have the wrong politics yeah i sense that being on on one end of it so let's finish with this what is your biggest fear i was talking to the other guests on the editors podcast yesterday about whether or not this is diminishing as a cultural phenomenon whether or not this tendency toward outrage and sensitivity reading and abridgment is diminishing or increasing. My view was that it is diminishing 
think everyone else thought that it was increasing. Do you think that it's getting worse or better? And if it's getting worse, what's your biggest fear? Well, I might have said it was getting better until this past week, and then this thing with Roald Dahl happened. But the thing with Roald Dahl that interests me is not just how far over the line it is, but how nobody will defend it. Not even people who, I mean, they might defend the like the idea of it, but nobody is willing to say, uh, perhaps because it would be an egregious lie, that these edits make the books better. Just patently and very demonstrably do not. So, I guess what what might scare me is the possibility that this becomes a norm. The fact that we live in a world now where so much media is digital and people tend not to own physical copies of you know the art that they consume, especially the books they consume, um, leaves the door open for this very insidious type of censorship in which, you know, like the digital entity that you think you own, but of course you don't because it lives on a server that belongs to somebody else. You know, anybody who has the code to do this can go in and they can edit it, they can alter it. And then it's as though it's always been that way. It's it's that sense of creating not just a censored piece of art, but like a new reality to go with it that really kind of freaks me out. Um, it's like, and, and it goes kind of hand in hand with the existence of things like deep fake pornography. I just feel like we live in a really weird moment where things could go very badly if a few people decide to take them in a bad direction. Yeah, and it's so interesting how different what you just described, which is also one of my great fears, is from the promise. And when the internet first arrived on the scene, you would see these commercials on television and they would say, surf the information highway and chat with people all over the world. And of course, what happened is everyone fights and throws stuff at each other. They would draw these analogies with the Library of Alexandria. We have the sum of human knowledge. We have all different versions of, well, that's not what's happening, is it? What's happening is people are taking the opportunity to homogenize and edit down in a way that is, is creepy. All right, Kat Rosenfield, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And that's all we have time for this week. Like Will Smith, I'm off to Miami. Will Smith once wrote about me and Charlie at the bar running up a high bill. That's us. Thank you to my guest, Kat Rosenfield. Thank you to the listener who sent in today's cue for today's cue and day. Thank you to you for listening, and I will see you next week.